0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1271. If you're a guest with us, we've been working uh, verse by verse through the book of Titus, and we've uh, finally come to the last section of chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 10 in just a moment. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today. Liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Titus chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse 10. And this is what the Word of God says. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. But they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. From God's perspective, the greatest spiritual danger to Christians is not the persecutions and threats that arise from outside of the church, but the wolves that spring up from within. The Bible is filled with concern about false teaching and its danger to the family of God. In his ministry, the Apostle Paul constantly warned believers of the dangers that were posed by false teachers. In fact, one of his most well-known exhortations to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30, reinforces his instructions to Titus here in chapter 1. And in Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, Paul said this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The peril of false teachers is so great that in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul said that if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. To illustrate the danger of false teachers, we need look no further than the island of Crete where false teachers were posing a serious threat to the believers by the doctrine they were promoting. That's why the great need of the hour is for the kind of sound, stable, mature, godly leaders that Paul has described for us in verses 5 through 9. Men who are self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined men who hold firm to the trustworthy word and who are able to encourage others in sound doctrine and rebuke and refute those who contradict it. You'll notice in this passage the very first word in verse number 10, the word for, intimately connects these verses with Paul's instructions in verses 5 through 9 and his instruction to Titus to appoint elders in every town. And here we see the urgency and the need for pastors who are godly in character and sound in doctrine. As one commentator said, when false teachers increase, the most appropriate long-term strategy to counteract them is to multiply the number of true teachers. And that's what Paul is teaching Titus to do. The church in Crete was in severe danger from false teachers who were destroying families with their destructive heresy. So Paul instructs Titus and us to recognize and confront liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons who prey on God's people and attack God's church. And so, will you note with me, first of all, this morning, the description of the false teachers? And we'll find it in verse 10, verse 11, verses 12 and 13, and verse 16. And you'll notice in this description, in verse number 10, he describes their ministry. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The ministry of the false teachers in Crete was one of rebellion. Paul says that they were insubordinate. This word is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1 and verse 6 to describe the kind of children that would disqualify someone from becoming an elder. So he's teaching Titus and us that these false teachers were like unruly children. They rejected authority. They refused to be accountable to anyone. And they established themselves as the sole authority of all religious matters. And it's a reminder to all of us this morning that people who are rebellious and who are in rebellion towards God They don't simply wonder from the truth, friends. They flat out reject the truth. And that's what these teachers were. They were teachers of rebellion. But he also tells us in verse number 10 that the ministry of the false teachers in Crete lacked substance. They were empty talkers. Kenneth Woost, in his uh, Greek word study, defines that phrase, empty talkers, as devoid of force, devoid of truth, devoid of success, and devoid of results. An empty talker is one who utters empty, worthless words. Oh, these teachers had plenty of style, but they lacked substance. They were void of spiritual profit and spiritual fruit. And so they were insubordinate. They were empty talkers. And he also tells us in verse number 10 that the ministry of the false teachers in Crete was deceptive. They were deceivers. Not only did they fail to edify the church, they were actively confusing and leading people in the church astray. And notice... At the beginning of verse number 10, there were many, many false teachers in this church who had a ministry like this. In verse number 11, he moves from their ministry to their motive. And at the end of verse number 11, he says that they teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Would you make note of this this morning? That false teachers, teachers are always in it for the money they're always in it for the money and he says that they are teaching for shameful gain and when we hear that phrase shameful gain we automatically think of the negative but it literally translates a blessing or an advantage and so you could think of it like this in verse number 11 these false teachers were teaching for fame They were teaching for influence. They were teaching to expand their platform. If they had an Instagram account or a Twitter feed, they were trying to gain more and more followers and build a bigger and bigger reputation and platform. They were seeking an advantage over the weak and the vulnerable. And Peter taught the persecuted Christians of his day that a true servant of God does not minister for personal gain. He ministers to help others and to help others grow in their faith. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 2, he says that we are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, not for advantage. Not so that you could prey on the weak and the vulnerable. So he describes their ministry and their motive. And then in verses 12 and 13, he describes their manner. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Crete was known in the ancient world for its moral decadence. The ancient historian Polybius wrote that it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. And in verse number 12, Paul quotes from a Cretan prophet named Epimenides, who was a highly respected Greek Intellectual of the 6th century. He was a native of Crete. And he knew the culture and the people well. And you'll notice in verse 12 that his uh, description of the people of Crete was not very flattering. He said that they are always liars. And scholars say that the inhabitants of Crete were so characterized by lying that to Cretanize meant To lie. But he doesn't just call them liars. Look at the text. He says they're evil beasts. Literally, they're dangerous, wild, uncontrollable animals. And then to top it all off, he says they're lazy gluttons. They're self-indulgent. They're overfed. They're without discipline or control. They like to eat a lot and work a little. They live for the desires of the flesh and for their appetites. How would you like to be described like that? You're a liar. You're an evil beast. You're a lazy glutton. And then to top it all off, at the beginning of verse 13, Paul says, This testimony is true. What he said about these people is true. And when Paul said that, he was referring to these false teachers. They were liars, they were wild animals, they were lazy gluttons. Instead of feeding the people of God, they fed themselves. And finally, in verse number 16, he describes their misery. Notice carefully this verse, friends. It is the climax of the passage. It is so powerful. They profess to know God but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These false teachers were the most miserable people in Crete. Do you know why? They professed to know God, but they did not possess a true knowledge of him. In fact, Paul says that they actually denied God by their works the word deny that he uses in verse 16 it is the same word that is used in the gospel of john in john chapter 18 to describe peter's denial of jesus christ and here's the reality that i want you to see from verse 16 you and i demonstrate whether or not we truly know god by the way we live our lives I will know that you possess a true knowledge of God by the changes in your life that that true knowledge of God brings about you will know that I possess a true knowledge in relationship with God by the changes that that knowledge in relationship bring about in my life and at the end of verse 16 Through the Apostle Paul, God gives his assessment of these false teachers. And it reflects their misery. This is God's commentary on the state of their souls. Look at it. He says that they're detestable. That is a word that is used in connection with idolatry. And it is God's view of idol worshipers. And it literally means to be repulsive and to be an abomination. And so Paul says that when God looks on these false teachers, he is repulsed by what what he sees in them. They're detestable. He says they're disobedient. They're rebellious. Their minds are made up. They will not be persuaded to change their course. They are in outright rebellion against God. And then, number three, they're unfit for any good work. It literally means they're disqualified. God looks at them, and his summary of their life and their ministry is simply this You're disqualified. You're not on the road that leads to heaven. You're disqualified. So what are we to do with this description? Because when you have a passage of Scripture like this, the challenge for the preacher is always in how you apply it and make it relevant. And so here's something that I want you to think about this morning. Paul's description of these false teachers in the verses that I've just laid out for you is universal. You can take this grid that he's given you in verse 10 verse 11 verses 12 and 13 and verse 16 And you can apply it to any culture any false teacher any setting in any period of history It describes the same people from the beginning of time but secondly I want you to think about in this description of a twofold warning that Paul gives us. Here's the first one. When you read descriptions like this and you see how people have wandered away and turned away from the true gospel and the truth and what that has done to their life, it is a warning for us not to live an independent, isolated life. It's a warning not to assume that you know what is best. It is a warning to sit under true, biblical, godly authority. It is a warning to surround yourself with other Christians, especially those who are older and wiser and more mature than you. Don't fall prey to living an individual, isolated Christian life that is actually an oxymoron. It doesn't work and here's the second warning don't disqualify yourself by being someone who professes to know God but denies him by your works and the way you live your life make sure you possess what you profess that there is a consistency between what you say you believe and have embraced, and how you live your life. That there's no discrepancy. Well, we not only see the description of false teachers, secondly, we see the deceptive influence of the false teachers at the end of verse 10 and in verses 14 and 15. And I want you to pay careful attention to the text. This morning this is very relevant he says at the end of verse 10 especially those of the circumcision party and then in verses 14 and 15 he says not devoting themselves to jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure all things are pure but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure both their minds and their consciences are defiled You'll notice at the end of verse 10 that Paul identifies the false teachers as belonging to the circumcision party. Scholars have established that a large Jewish community had settled in Crete. And out of that community arose a group of teachers who claimed to be Christians, but who were in fact false teachers. Now Paul doesn't go into great detail regarding what these false teachers were promoting... However, the label that he uses in verse 10, circumcision party, reflects their teaching that salvation required not only faith in Jesus Christ, but also the adoption of Jewish ritual practices such as circumcision for salvation. That to be a Christian, according to these teachers, you had to have faith in Christ and be circumcised. Now you'll notice additionally in verse number 14 <clears throat> that Paul says that these false teachers devote themselves to Jewish myths. And these Jewish myths likely included elaborate unbiblical genealogies. William Barclay in his commentary described it this way the false teachers tried to persuade the people that the simple story of Jesus and the cross was not sufficient. That to be really wise, they needed all the subtle stories and the long genealogies and the elaborate allegories of all of the Jewish rabbis. And so they taught them all of these myths. But not only did the false teachers promote spiritual myths in verse 14... Paul says that they developed a system of man-made commands. The false teachers were saying that you became a Christian by faith in Christ and by circumcision. And to stay a Christian or to be a good Christian, you needed to study and learn extra biblical material. And you needed to follow their code of conduct and discipline so that you would be kept safe from all forms and manner of worldliness and according to Paul the result of all of this deceitful teaching at the end of verse 14 was a turning away from the truth the false teachers turned away from the truth and they were turning other people away from the truth now in verse 15 Paul summarizes the deceptive influence of these false teachers. Their emphasis on religious rituals and ceremonies, as well as myths and the commands of the people, look carefully at the text in verse 15, was a means to gain purity and acceptance with God. Tim Chester, in his book Titus for You, makes this comment about Verses 14 and 15. Laws and rules that look as if they are about promoting and protecting godliness are actually about limiting godliness. They reduce godliness to ticking some boxes. As long as I do this, that, and the other, then I'm okay. Or as long as I'm circumcised, then I'm godly. So you can be circumcised and a lying glutton and yet convince yourself that you are godly. Being godly becomes being legalistic in several areas of life, and it involves ignoring ungodliness in all the other areas of life. And that's the point of the text. That's the point that Paul is making. They were promoting a form of ritual and ceremony and legalism They were adding rules to the lives of the Christians in Crete. And listen carefully to me, friends. Adding rules has no power to change your life. Adding rules, do you know what that does? It leads you to verse 16. When you add rules and live for rules, you end up disqualifying yourself by professing something that you do not possess. And that's what was happening in this church. This is not new. The religious leaders of Jesus' day taught the same kind of externalism as a way to find acceptance with God. And in his confrontation of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. And this is what Jesus said to them. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of man. That's it. When you add rules and you elevate the rules above the Word of God, your worship is vain, it's empty, it's meaningless. You draw near to God with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. And you are elevating the commands of man over the Word of God. And do you know how Paul described this? Listen to how he described it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul actually says this kind of false teaching in the church is the doctrine and the teaching of demons. It comes from the pit of hell. So in verse 15, to illustrate the error of these false teachers, Paul uses the word defile two times to describe them. This word defile is a powerful word. It means to stain something another color, to dye, to pollute, to rot, To cheapen something in such a way that it cannot be changed. And with the use of this word, Paul is teaching us that this is exactly what sin does to our lives. It corrupts our hearts. It contaminates our souls. It stains every part of our lives and it it destroys everything it touches. Now look at the text in verse 15. This defilement, this... Pollution of sin in the false teacher's lives. Notice what it did. It affected their minds. And it affected their consciences. And look carefully at the text. It revealed their unbelief. It shined a spotlight on the fact that they were not true Christians. They were unbelievers. And because they were defiled in their mind, because they were defiled in their conscience, because they were stained and polluted to their core, their perspective and their actions were completely tainted by their sin. And Paul says to them, nothing in life was pure. And nothing was pure because they weren't pure. They were defiled. In his teaching in the Gospels, Jesus made it abundantly clear that a person is morally and spiritually defiled by sin in their heart and mind, that they don't become defiled by the things they do and the things they touch and the things they eat. Their defilement comes from the inside out. And in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, he said this, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And then in verses 18 to 20 of Matthew 15, he gave a clearer description of what he meant. He says, What comes out of our mouth proceeds from our heart, and this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. And these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And so teachers who were saying, don't eat this, don't do that, make sure you do this, make sure you do that, couldn't even discern what was pure and right and true because they were completely contaminated from the inside out. Calvin said it this way, Those who seek to justify men by their outward practice do no more than cover a stinking pile of filth with a linen sheet or a cloak, and the filth still remains. You can clean everything up on the outside and still be filthy on the inside. And this is Paul's point to Titus and to us. Listen carefully to me, friends. You will never find true purity in your life, and you will never find true acceptance with God in your life through the practice of rituals and rules. These man-made commands will never, ever, ever set you free from your guilt, from your shame, and from your utter bondage to sin. The purity that God recognizes and commends doesn't come from you. It comes from God himself. And you can only obtain this purity through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Being pure before God, being acceptable to God, never has anything to do with what you do. Being pure before God, being accepted by God is always, it is always about what God has done for you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, when he was writing to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, he gave one of the most poignant, powerful verses to refute this false doctrine and teaching. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, he said it this way. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And the word justified that he uses is a word that describes you becoming pure before God, becoming acceptable to God, and becoming accepted with God. And Paul couldn't be any more clear. You will never be right with God by things that you do. You will only be right with God by what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf and your belief. And your trust in his work. He would describe it this way in Romans chapter 3, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 6, that you need to identify with Christ in his death. That when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, and the sin of the whole world was placed upon him as a punishment from divine wrath for sin. That you identify with Christ in His death as He hung on the cross. That when He hung on the cross and died for sin, He hung on the cross and died for your sin. So that when Jesus died for your sin, you died with Him. And then you identify not only with His death, but you identify with His burial. That when Jesus was taken off the cross and He was put in the tomb, dead you were in that tomb with him you died with christ when he died and then you identify with him in his resurrection on the third day when the stone was rolled away and jesus stepped out of the tomb you identify with him in his resurrection and defeat of sin death hell satan and the grave and then when jesus walked out of the tomb you walked out with him you identify with him in his death And in His burial and His resurrection. And you believe that He did all of those things for you. And you don't try to gain your purity and your acceptance before God by checking lists and keeping rules and not doing this and doing that. You find your purity and acceptance before God in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is justification. And friends, this is the good news of the gospel. When you identify with Christ and you become justified, you are justified forever. Then in that moment, God looks at you and He sees you completely pure, completely spotless, completely holy. He looks at you and He no longer sees your guilt. He no longer sees your shame. He no longer sees your bondage to sin. He looks at you and He sees the victorious Jesus Christ, His one and only dearly beloved Son. And you are accepted by God forever in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is true purity. That is true acceptance before God. And look at verse 15. When you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you become pure, and then everything becomes pure. Do you see it? To the pure, all things are pure. Why? Because your purity is not outward, it's inward. As the Bible says, you're given a new heart. A heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. And now you have a desire for purity. You have a desire for God. You have a desire for the things of God. And when your heart and your mind and your conscience are no longer defiled and tainted by sin, you're able to enjoy and use all of the good gifts of life that God has given you in the way and the manner He intended for you to use them without sinning. And so to the pure, all things become pure. True purity is always inward, and this inward purity always leads to outward purity. And that's the point of these verses. So how should we think about this? Well, you need to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The deceptive influence of this kind of false teaching was popular in Jesus' day, it was popular in Paul's day, and it is extremely popular in our day. Friends, do you understand this morning that we are surrounded with teaching that is false, that is openly and willingly embraced with no discernment whatsoever? For instance, people are encouraged to light a candle on behalf of someone else to help them. People are encouraged to take beads and pray certain prayers with each bead. People are encouraged to offer prayers to Mary as if she is the one who intercedes for you at the right hand of the throne of God. May I remind you this morning that there is only one person who sits in that seat And it is not Mary, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bought your freedom on the cross. We are encouraged to get baptized for someone who has already died so that they can go to heaven. We are encouraged to trust and know extra-biblical material like the Book of Mormon and the Watchtower literature and the ever-popular Jesus Calling books. We are encouraged to sow financial seeds in someone's ministry and help them get that new better-equipped jet so that God will bless us financially. False teachers tell us Then we can command God to do things on our behalf. And when God doesn't listen to us, the problem is with us because we've not had enough faith to justify the sin and the carnal desires of congregations. False teachers use the Bible as a self-help book and as a form of pop psychology. And the Bible is compromised by false teachers so that congregations will be comfortable in their sin, in their unbiblical lifestyle, in their unbiblical worldview. And people willingly accommodate this to make people feel comfortable on their way to hell. And we're told that self-controlled, sober-minded, disciplined Christian living is not enough. We must chase after the latest emotional high. We must have the next new experience. Because all other forms of church and Christianity are old-fashioned, they're boring, they're irrelevant. You can't stand up and teach the Bible. It's irrelevant. And we're fed this junk food every single day. It begs the question, doesn't it? Why is it so prevalent? Why is this happening everywhere? Well, did you know that the prophet Jeremiah answers that question? In Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, this is what he said about the culture of his day. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Notice how the Bible describes this form of false teaching. It's appalling. It is horrible. Verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule at their direction. You hear that? False teachers. They prophesy falsely. They rule at their own direction and their own whims. They're liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. Why do they get away with it? Why is it so prevalent? Why is it happening all across the land? Listen to his answer. My people love to have it so. That's the answer. People love the doctrine of demons. People love. In their carnal, sinful, fleshly desires, this kind of teaching. That's why it's so prevalent. We love it. And listen to how he ends the verse. But what will you do when the end comes? Oh, that's the question, isn't it? You love this kind of teaching? You love this kind of doctrine of demon. You love this kind of work salvation that you can do all these things to make yourself better and more pure and more acceptable to God. My question for you is the same question that the prophet Jeremiah asked. What in the world will you do when the end comes and you stand before Jesus face to face? What will you do? There will be no hope for you in that day. You will have been deceived. When we not only see the description of false teachers and the deceptive influence of false teachers, things will go much quicker now. We see the devastation of false teachers in verse 11. Since they are upsetting whole families. At the time of Paul's writing, the churches met in homes. And teachers would travel from home to home and give instruction. And Paul tells us in verse 11 that this false teaching that was taking root in these churches was damaging and devastating entire families. He uses the word upsetting in the ESV. It is the same word that is used to describe Jesus when he went into the temple and overturned the money changers' tables. Families were turned upside down. Because of this teaching. And friends, don't you know that to be true? I bet in your sphere of influence, you know people who are involved in false teaching. And you've seen the devastation that it's brought in the home to the family. I've seen firsthand experience the devastation of Mormonism in a family's life. First hand. That's what false teaching does. It destroys families. And all of us can relate to this. So we see the description of the false teachers, the deceptive influence of the false teachers, the devastation of the false teachers, and finally, we see the demand concerning the false teachers. In verse 11, Paul says, this cannot stand. They must be Silenced. And in verse 13, he says, Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The spiritual safety and well being of God's people was on the line and it demanded a response from Titus. So Paul tells Titus to silence them. It literally means to muzzle. You could say it this way, Paul. Tells Titus, Titus, go get an old, dirty, filthy, sweaty, stinky sock that you've worked out in at the gym and shove it in their mouth. Silence them. In addition to silencing them in verse 14, rebuke them sharply. The word sharply means to cut as with a knife or an axe. It was to penetrate with force. And the harshness of this response was due to the harshness of the heresy. And you'll notice nowhere in verse 11 or in verse 14 does Paul tell Titus that there is an expiration date to this. That he is to continue to silence them. He is to continue to rebuke them sharply. To cut this false teaching out. It made me think of the little Japanese maple tree that's in our front flower bed right in front of our front door. And when we bought that tree 19 years ago, it was about like that. And we put it in the ground and it took years for it to start growing. And now it's tall and it's bloomed and that thing grows crazy. And Gretchen will go out and she'll trim and cut it all back. And two days later, I'll be backing out of the driveway to go to work, and there it is again. It's all spread out. It keeps coming back, and it's hard to keep it trained and cut away and under control. And that's that's the image that Paul's giving Titus. That's what false teaching is like in the life of the church. You got to keep cutting it away. You got to keep silencing it. You got to keep bringing it into submission. And notice what he says in verse 14. Why do you do this? So people will become sound in the faith. It literally means so that they'll be healthy through the truth. That's the point. That's the point. The Christian message, Christian teaching is always about the health and the well-being of the flock. True biblical preaching and teaching is always about making you healthy and sound in your faith and in the truth and in what you believe. True biblical teaching and preaching is always about making your family sound. Not hurting them. And this is what a church should do. So I'll close with this this morning. There's four reasons why we need this text number one we are constantly in a state of danger if you're a christian the bible says you're a sheep and sheep are dumb and defenseless and because sheep are dumb and defenseless we are always in danger and so we always need a text like this to remind us of the danger that surrounds us number two We need a text like this to know what a healthy pastor and a healthy church should look like. Number three, we need a text like this because we know people who need to hear a text like this. And number four, we need a text like this because there are people all around us who are promoting and absorbed with false teaching. And the question is, will we have a conversation with them about these things and point them to the truth? Will we silence and cut away the false doctrine because their eternal destiny is at stake? Let's pray.